when we talk about the scope of the problem, it's massive. It's just incomprehensible. I think, say, 40 to 50 million people in the world are subject to modern slavery. This is Governance Matters, the podcast for corporate secretaries. I'm Taylor Hughes. And I'm Jeff Cassette. Uh, that's right, folks. Chances are your company profits from slaves. That looks bad. Just so. It turns out having slaves in your supply chain is pretty bad for your reputation. It's bad for your brand, bad for business, and, more and more, you're risking some serious trouble with the law. Well, Jeff, it is slavery. But here's the rub. A complex and expanding regulatory web now governs global business and human rights rules. It's a tricky tangle that can actually make it hard to do the right thing, let alone the legal thing. Which is why our guest today is so interesting. Yusuf Aftab is director of A2, a boutique law firm that helps companies manage social risk across the globe. He says the only way to navigate modern slavery's emerging legal landscape is with a structured, calibrated approach. And he's written a concise four-step reference manual on how directors and corporate officers can carry out effective modern slavery governance. We reached Yusuf Aftab in New York, and I began our conversation by asking him to bring us up to speed on the rapid rise of the S in ESG. What's happened in the last decade is that what had started as voluntary standards on corporate responsibility have evolved to become law. And they've become law partly through regulation uh, with uh, acts around, and they fall into different categories, acts around disclosure, mandatory due diligence, remediation. That's, that's those kinds of laws have emerged in different jurisdictions. And then there's also trade sanctions. But then at the same time, there's been real growth in litigation. And these two legal trends, they feed off one another. And so, uh, especially if you look at it at a global level, it's a much more stringent, uh, much more demanding legal risk environment around all sorts of social issues. And modern slavery has been at the forefront uh, of that, partly because it's a discrete issue. Uh, and it has, you know, even from in the early 2000s, uh, you know, California had the California Transparency and Supply Chain Act that focused on this issue on disclosure. Uh, but since then, there have been a lot of copycat laws that have emerged that have set out expectations for companies to disclose on modern slavery. So it's been a sort of the tip of the spear. But what's happened beyond that are broader human rights uh, questions and expectations of companies that have created an array of different risks, including representation risk. But let me pause here because I think that that. There's a whole universe we're entering, so I just want to make sure that we're in the direction that uh, you're curious about. Um, yeah. Uh, so the voluntary standards weren't working, and uh, and now there's all this regulation and more on the way now. Um, how, how sensitized are people, the people you meet, to all this new uh, legal 
at-risk regime when it comes to slavery? Well, I'd say first, I, I'm not sure that we'd say that the voluntary standards weren't working. Right? And actually, most of, the, most of the companies that turn to us, uh, it's because of the voluntary standards. It's not necessarily because of law. So law is, is catching up, but there's certain things that law can't do. There are things that voluntary standards can't do, and law is going to help with that. And that's particularly in making sure that uh, it's a level playing field and that there's a little more certainty as to what's expected. But in the broader context, what we've seen is that the first companies to turn to corporate responsibility in this more structured way were those who faced the greatest risk. And they were ones who'd either faced risk uh, because of brand issues uh, that, and we knew, you know, you'd hear of campaigns in the 1990s against uh, sweatshops in the apparel sector, but then oil spills and security, uh, security force violations in the resource sector. These were the companies that first turned to implementing more rigorous programs. And when we talk about rigorous programs, it's about identifying where those risks might be. Uh, developing strategies for responding to them both at, well, ideally addressing them before they uh, develop into something that's a reputational risk, uh, but then responding to them if they do turn into some global crisis. So it was risk-driven. And initially, the companies that faced the greatest risk were the ones who responded. What's evolved uh, over the last decade is that there are far more companies and far more sectors that have determined that this is a material issue for them to handle. And now, I'd say consciousness among Fortune 500 companies is extremely strong. There's no Fortune 500 company, doesn't matter the sector, that says, oh, we don't need to think about sustainability. We don't need to think about having due diligence on where there might be uh, issues in our supply chain that we need to address. There's still quite limited consciousness when it comes to small and medium enterprises, I think, or even if there is consciousness, the, the programs are still uh, nascent. There are understandable reasons for that. I think that's going to change in law is forcing that to some extent. Where we've seen senior level consciousness, it is, you can break it down by jurisdiction. So in Europe, companies have been grappling with this quite seriously, leading European companies have been at the forefront in grappling with these issues in a sophisticated way. Uh, the United States is now, you know, companies are catching up. Partly that is because they are global companies and are thinking about their European expectations and uh, standards under those laws. Partly it's because of brand consciousness, but it's also substantially because of investors. So if you think about BlackRock and Vanguard and JP Morgan, they are now engaging with uh, boards of when these issues arise. They are asking for uh, governance around it. What, is, you know, what are your policies around these particular human rights issues? Uh, what are you doing to identify and address them when they arise? And what they're looking for are quite structured responses on this person being in charge, this is what the chain of command looks like, this is how we implement uh, policies and protocols around it. Hmm. Well, I'd say at the the kinds of companies that would turn to us, they're large companies. They are, and, and you know, it's, 
it's generally, frankly, Fortune 100 companies who are willing to spend the money to do this with counsel uh, in a in a very sophisticated way. But that that consciousness is spreading. I think uh, when we when we break down the types of issues that drive the thinking. So if you look at ESG as you know having its three components: environment, social, and governance. Governance companies have been thinking about for a long time around corruption and then cyber issues and money laundering and their very sophisticated programs. Uh, on the E, that the environmental issues, that's also that's where there's the most consciousness. And I'd say there's right. uh, a great imbalance now, right? It, still, if you were to talk to you know CEOs of the hundred largest companies in the world. On ESG, they're going to spend ninety percent of their time talking about climate, uh, and that's there are several reasons for that. I think, but that there's the most consciousness there. But social is is definitely picking up, and it's picking up partly because of the questions from investors. Uh, it's being guided to some extent by voluntary, or largely by voluntary standards. But now you're seeing regulation that is forcing that conversation. We've definitely seen an evolution certainly in the last decade, but uh, really in the last three years, where until 2019, the vast majority of our engagements were actually through our consulting arm, because this was not seen as a legal issue. And now I'd say it's almost it's almost exclusively a legal issue in terms of our engagements. And it's general counsel's office will get in touch with us to say, well, how do we frame this policy? How do we understand these risks? And how do we respond in a way that then navigates that array of, of challenges that are emerging. At the board level, though, I think we're still in early stages. So we are seeing boards get more engaged on ESG, but that largely still focuses on the E. Uh, the S, the challenge, uh, has been that it's undefined. It's largely been treated as a space that it's for the hot issue of the day. So it might be diversity one year. It might be uh, it might be living wage another year. What that strikes me is the juicy issues that that should have been at the front of the table a long time ago. Yeah, it, like, it, I mean, it should have been, but it's also understandable why it wasn't. It's hard to it's hard to know what you're supposed to do. Right? If you're if you're a, a business leader who's managing risk, you want to be able to anticipate what it is, define that know that when you implement certain controls, you've been being in good shape with reference to it. And I think for a long time, there was a sense that you can't, we can't tame it. We don't know what the issues are necessarily going to be. We don't know what a civil society group is going to say matters here uh, and what we're necessarily going to get hit on. So it's harder to treat it as seriously because it doesn't feel as much of a science. Whereas when you think about, uh, when you think about environmental issues, we know there are scientific measures and there are metrics we can set in place. What are emissions? What are, what's our water usage? We can report on a lot of these different things and, and track them. It's been harder to figure out what to do on the social, but that's what's changed. And I think the, the more sophisticated companies have realized, uh, I still say this is a small subset of companies, uh, you know, global companies, but they've realized that you need to treat the S uh, with the same kind of rigor as you treat, frankly, the G, because it has more, the expectations have evolved so that they're very similar if you track expectations and 
how risk has progressed. It's very similar to what happened with corruption risk mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. And the expectation was not you have to eliminate corruption everywhere in the world. It was you have to implement best practices to identify and minimize the risk of corruption anywhere you operate company. And that's the kind of expectation that's involved on the yes. So it resembles much more the governance element of ESG uh, than I think is commonly assumed. Hmm. Do you, um, kind of a segue, do you hold that thought, but I'm just wondering, how, how, how do you go in and sort of detect modern slavery in your supply chain? What do you do? Do you say basic, but how do you do that sort of? Well, so it's, I mean, it's a tiered process as with any risk. So what you're identifying are risks first, right? So you would say, for example, you've got, if you've got a company that has uh, a supply chain, let's make it a simple supply chain, right? So it has its sources from five different countries. Let's say, you know, it's Australia, Poland, Turkey, Vietnam, and Brazil. What you would say to, for this company that's setting up the system is first you do a country risk analysis, right? There's a lot out there in terms of what the human rights risks are in these different countries. So at a first level of screening, you might say, all right, Australia's legislation is very strong. We're not really concerned about modern slavery there. Poland, there are some concerns, but in general, what we see based on country risk analysis is that it's limited. But Turkey and Brazil and maybe Vietnam, they're high risk. Okay, so then you focus on those countries and what you try to do First is identify sector risk. So let's say you're in the agricultural sector. Uh, what is the risk in the agricultural sector here? So you have another sort of uh, another lens, another filter you apply. And maybe in Turkey, it's pretty high risk in the agricultural sector in Brazil. And so you're, you're now you're focusing on those two sectors in those two jurisdictions. And then you want to understand what the controls are in place. So the the key question is not just what is the risk here, but what is the risk that this is in my value chain with the companies I work with? So then you're trying to do some due diligence on the specific suppliers. And that is where you're trying to understand supplier, what are your policies? How do you ascertain whether whether your workers have been uh, or have their rights respected? So with modern slavery in particular, what we're trying to look for is particular indicators. Are people forced to pay recruitment fees? Do they get employment contracts? Do they understand uh, their rights and obligations? Do you hold on to their identity documents? These are the indicators of modern slavery. So what you'd be looking at for the suppliers in that context would be some evidence from them that they don't hold, they have a policy, say we don't hold passports. Uh, and then ideally, they would also have some mechanism for workers to raise complaints. So, the, and so if an issue does arise, now this is inexact, right? It's as with any risk analysis, what you're trying to do is gauge the level of severity. If you determine, for instance, in Turkey we have three agricultural suppliers, uh, and two of them, they can share with us all their policies and they can share with us a risk assessment. You might say, we don't need to worry about them. And the third one says, well, we don't have anything. Well, that's probably your highest risk supplier. So then you might want to send an audit team there uh, and to figure out what they've got in place. 
So the whole pro and this is very similar to what you do in a corruption context, frankly, or money laundering context, where you sit, you you take it in layers so that you're only ultimately sending and you know doing intensive due diligence with a team on the ground at the highest risk places, uh, and that that's based on this tiering of risk at every level. Okay. Uh, and again, pardon my ignorance, but let's say you discover it and you um, uh, disclose it. I guess you have to say we're fixing it, right? I mean, there's a risk to disclosing it, right? <laughs> this is this is where actually you've touched on one of the the greatest challenges, including in the proposed legislation in Canada right now. There are perverse incentives in place. So the original conception of uh, corporate responsibility in these disclosure standards was light sunlight disinfects. So you would have companies, you telling them you're not going to get punished if there's forced labor. We want you to just be honest about it. Tell us what you're doing. Tell us you're doing your best and tell us you're, you know, identify and say you're trying to fix it. But then we have other types of legislation that's emerged and we're seeing more of it that is uh, stricter in implication. So in the United States, for instance, you have the uh, Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, which punishes companies for involvement, reckless or knowing involvement in a venture, which includes uh, supply chain uh, activities where there's forced labor, which means if you disclosed, according to the UK Modern Slavery Act, We've done this due diligence. We've identified forced labor at this factory in Vietnam. You could face uh, liability in the United States for having disclosed that. So, and it gets worse with forced labor bans on trade and trade sanctions, which don't account for how hard you tried, right? So, if you put out a report that says we've identified forced labor here, there are more and more countries now in the world where they'd say, well, now you can no longer import your goods. It doesn't matter that you identified that forced labor because you had best-in-class due diligence. We're not giving you credit for effort. Uh, and so right now, this is, frankly, this is like a challenge for every global company we work with, is how can you put in place best-in-class due diligence without creating risk for boards and for the company. Has that actually ever happened? Or, or is that just a, a threat that's happening? Oh, so it at the trade sanction level, it's not clear. Uh, we do know. So in the United States, we know that Customs and Border Patrol has said in enforcing these bans, so the, the one key act is the U.S. Tariff Act, uh, so enforcing bans under the U.S. Tariff Act that would enable us to seize goods, we will rely on sustainability reports. So they, they've, they've made that statement, but generally they're relying on a number of factors. So it's unclear if that's determinative. But there is litigation, perverse litigation, that has to do with forced labor in cobalt supply chains uh, where... This is two years ago. There's a lawsuit. I mean, I think this was recently dismissed, but a lawsuit filed against Apple, Google, uh, Tesla, and Dell saying that they were 
benefiting from forced labor in their cobalt supply chains, and cobalt largely coming from Congo. Uh, and they, the forced labor, some of the evidence for the fact that they were benefiting from it were their own programs that they had implemented in their supply chains to address the risk of forced labor. And the plaintiffs, plaintiffs counsel cited this saying, see, you knew you was, and you were, you were benefiting from this. Those cases have not moved forward at that stage, or I'm not sure if any, any has been refiled, but that's, that's an example of how it can create that perverse incentive. And at least in one of those cases, when the company withdrew its program and tried to move its supply chain, they also got hit, not in litigation, but by the civil society group for walking away from their responsibilities. They said, we're going to use this against you either way. So there are, in this sense, we're in a complex environment because as risks have hardened, they are also become more perverse in many ways. You're listening to Governance Matters, a Corporate Secretary Magazine podcast. In your quick guide to implementing modern slavery policies, uh, the first pillar in that is commitment, fostering a culture of vigilance. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, I might just pull back for a moment to say what we're talking about with all of these is nothing new. Right, we're applying lessons from corporate compliance programs more generally to the specific array of challenges, social challenges. So, the point of commitment is first to demonstrate to the world that we take this seriously, and then second to build within the company this culture of taking this issue seriously. So, demonstrating to the world is partly about having a policy that sets out specifically what your expectations are. And partly, and maybe more importantly, is about saying this is taken seriously at the very at the very top of the company. So in an ideal world, what you can say is that there's someone at the board, some committee uh, at the board that has this tasked with this. Now that might be part of the public affairs committee or uh, some other compliance or integrity-oriented committee. But then there's also the right expertise. And then there's a clear reporting line that goes down that suggests who is in charge when an issue arises uh, and that there's regular updating. That demonstrates that this is at the heart of business processes and the leadership culture uh, and so it demonstrates the sincerity of intent. And, and so you have, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I just saw a perplexed look. So I wanted to, to pause for a moment, see if you had a question on that. From a commitment perspective, is there anything you said that you can point to that you see companies don't do that they should do a really practical process or? Uh... It, sorry, I'm not going to just say one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> couple of points. So. Uh, I'd say one big mistake companies make is that the policy itself commits to an impact rather than a process. That's where risk arises. So uh, if a company says there will never be forced labor in our supply chain, that's a lie. And that you're going to get called on that, that's going to create risk. If a company says we implement uh, you know, reasonable or best the best possible policies and protocols to identify and address modern slavery risk, 
that's a much more defensible policy and much more likely to be taken seriously, much less likely to create risk. That's at the policy level. At the oversight level, I'd say one of the big challenges, and investors are calling out companies on this now, is that at the board level, uh, there might be a group that's tasked with overseeing this, managing ESG risk or and the social in particular, but there might not be any actual expertise uh, with these issues there. And that's a red flag because people start looking under the hood and you'll see this from responsible investors. That's one of the questions is that, fine, you've got a committee, who's on that committee? And what experience do they have with these kinds of issues? That's going to depend sector to sector, but you might have, for instance, a reminding company at the board level, you might want someone who's got uh, expertise in security and human rights, or someone who's got expertise with stakeholder engagement and indigenous groups, something along those lines. But it should be targeted to the sector and subject specific. And then the last part of it is in reporting lines, call these issues are reported through makes a big difference. If it comes through a communications team or public affairs team, that's very different from it coming through legal or through compliance. And it suggests a different uh, sincerity of of effort and different perspective. And so that's another thing companies need to be careful of is what the, you know, when these issues feed in to senior management, who that person is and what does that say to the world about what kind of issue you think this is. Right. And um, you also write in your report, you say companies should carefully balance senior leadership oversight at the top with functional and subsidiary responsibility to ensure the parent does not claim unreasonable issue ownership. That's another banana peel you can slip over. Absolutely. And so if you look at litigation, risk and transnational tort litigation that has happened particularly in the United Kingdom and Canada, a lot of the focus has been on when uh, responsibility is voluntarily assumed by the parent company for particular issues. And that's a challenge. That is, you don't want the board to say, you know, when it comes to social issues, all the buck for all decisions everywhere in the world stops with us. You want an appropriate set of controls and uh, guidelines that are set from the top, but implementation responsibility to avoid the risk of undue liability flowing to the parent is for issue ownership to lie with those who are closest to the issue. And there's another operational reason for that too, right? That it's going to be much more effective if risks in Nigeria are managed by the Nigerian team rather than headquarters in Toronto or London or what have you. Can we move on to the second pillar, due diligence? Absolutely. The biggest risk and the biggest challenge we've seen is unstructured prioritization. That the key, when we think about diligence, and this speaks to the point we talked about earlier with risk tiering, is that a company can explain. Uh, so this is from the company risk perspective. A company should be thinking about how it can explain to a reasonable observer how it might have missed a particular issue. And the only way you can explain how you might have missed a particular issue is by saying, 
we approach it in a very structured way to try to identify our highest risks. And that's where we set the team and that's where we focus. I think a lot of what companies do is, is a bit ad hoc uh, in terms of what they're looking at where. So they might decide we are going to focus on these particular suppliers because they're the ones we buy the most things from, even though they happen to be based in the rich world. They might be based in Germany or Australia or what have Or they say, we're going to send audit teams to particular jurisdictions, but independently of that risk screening, because we have 18 audits we can conduct this year. And so we're just going to pick, we're just going to pick something that feels representative. The key is really to have a structured process to screen uh, risk throughout so that by the time you're sending a team somewhere, you have a really good reason to believe that is a place where there might be serious risk to address. So the overarching guidance on due diligence, I mean, there's a lot out there. There are a lot of different elements here. Uh, the overarching guidance would be to make sure there's a structured process in place to prioritize where you send, where you spend your resources. You want to, you want to send them not necessarily to what make the, what might make the biggest dent in your bottom line, but where it's most likely to happen. So, so you've done risk assessment, and then you go to the investigation. There's something called integration and monitor, monitoring comes next. So due diligence is a term of art that's used in this in the space of business and human rights, where it captures much more than we think about uh, maybe conventionally in the legal space. That it's not just about identifying where there are risks, it's actually also about developing protocols to manage those risks. And so this is integration and monitoring. So once, once say, you've, I, you've done this, you might start, right, let's start with it. Let's just go with a, an example of, a, let's say, a global mining company, Canadian mining company with operations all around the world. The first step might be the global risk assessment. What are the jurisdictions? What are the kinds of rights that might be at issue in these different places? Ultimately, let's say they prioritize activities in Guatemala, uh, a particular gold mine in Guatemala. Once you go to that gold mine and you identify certain risks through the investigation and certain potential impacts, then you want to, the whole aim is to develop better practices to deal with those. So it may mean we change the way we recruit, or it may mean that we have to build out the engagement team to make sure we're, we're talking to certain groups on an ongoing basis. The key is that once those recommendations are made uh, and those action plans are developed, they are owned by the functions that are going to have to deal with them on an ongoing basis. If you try to think about it as a centralized function that is implementing all of these, it's never going to be adapted at scale across the organization. So ultimately, what you want is for these risk management activities to be so embedded within functional responsibilities that the people who are doing them don't know that this is a human rights thing. It's just part of their job. This is how we work it. This is how we, uh, we do you know, pre-engagement investigations. Uh, this is who we talk to when we manage this risk. And then you need to assess how well that's doing on an ongoing basis. So this, and this is where we are now with the most sophisticated companies. They're building human rights into their enterprise risk management uh, policies and protocols, and then the recommendations that flow from those 
they flow to specific risk owners. And then there's reporting on an ongoing basis on how well those actions did in a, con a continuous process of improving and feeding back into that enterprise process. The main point here is that it shouldn't be siloed, right? It should, you can't have this one category, human rights risk, that lives apart from all the other kinds of risks you're thinking about, whether it's compliance risk, whether it's health and safety risk, whether it has to do with supply engagement risk. There's when it comes to human rights, they're, they're, they feed into every one of these. There's a discrete piece. And so you want to make sure that lens is applied across the board so that you, the ultimate system, the overarching system, is as resilient and adaptable as possible. Uh, we can move on to disclosure. So disclosure, and this touches on the issue we were uh, speaking about earlier, disclosure shares similarities in structural constraints with policies, right? These are public representations that are being made. And so when those representations are being made, one, they should be true. Uh, and so there should be, there, a company should be very wary of saying things that might be exaggerations because these are increasingly actionable. But the other element, and this ties into, frankly, the the litigation trends. We we haven't necessarily spoken about the interaction between you know, disclosure legislation and litigation, but one of the one of the challenges that companies have run into is even when you have just disclosure legislation, it in itself it might not have substantial ramifications for for failure from the regulators themselves, but the indirect effects can be substantial if you have representations in your disclosure that suggest a substantial oversight by the board uh, or you know very close monitoring of uh, of these issues that come down from corporate that can be used later to argue voluntary assumption of responsibility uh, but it can also you know depending on the specific issue say forced labor it can be used in claims uh, you know, in other jurisdictions that might argue for liability or for trade sanctions. And so what's important is to think about disclosure through these multiple lenses that yes, we want to get our story out that might have some brand implications. Certain key stakeholders are going to care about this while recognizing that it can create increasingly material legal risk across jurisdictions. And so that that's a calibration process. And this goes uh, more broadly to the whole exercise that we've been talking about. One of the things that makes uh, ESG, but particularly the social, really complicated for companies is that it's not just one type of risk. Right? It is, it's not, you can't, if you look at it just through a legal prism, you're going to do a disservice to, to the brand and to perception by investors and the like. But if you think about it as just a brand exercise, you're going to create legal risk. Uh, and possibly operational risk. And so the key is to think about all those dimensions at the same time, and you're going to take certain calculated legal risks to make sure you address certain stakeholder concerns, uh, and you might take certain brand risks to make sure you don't create legal risk. So like you're saying, you don't want to silo it. You want to bring in maybe IR for that or um, marketing, uh, you know, even HR. Yeah, absolutely. So for all of these issues, ultimately, so from disclosure, but disclosure for sure, but policy development as well, 
you want a cross-functional team. You need to have multiple eyes. And you can't have, you know, where we've seen danger is where you've got best practice is where there's a cross-functional team. And where lawyers who are educated on this are talking to IR folk who are educated on this, who are talking to uh, public relations folk and government relations folk. Uh, and, and the strategy accounts for all those dimensions. Where there's danger is where you've got, frankly, where you've got lawyers running it, that's where you get really, you get often quite dumb risks that are taken by companies because lawyers don't want to say anything. And when you've got just comms folk running it, that's where you also get real dangers because there's a tendency to exaggerate or use language loosely that has been tying companies in knots and creating litigation risk. So calibration is the key. Undisclosure is all about calibration. Who does that really well? Can you give an example of a company that is a template for very nicely calibrated disclosure? I would say uh, Nestle is probably the archetype. They do run, they're quite transparent. They also face a lot of litigation, not necessarily because of their transparency, frequently in response to where the transparency is in response to litigation, but they have a cross-functional team. Uh, they are really well trusted by all sorts of stakeholders. Okay. Uh, and they do take calculated legal risk with their disclosure, but they're also, uh, they're also conscious of what those legal risks are in what they're disclosing. Uh, there are some oil and gas companies as well. I think uh, Shell is very good, as is Equinor. Equinor. Equinor, uh, former Statoil, Norway. Yeah, those those would be the example. Unilever is another one that's always they're always uh, very good and quite calibrated. Though I think Nestle is probably a little better calibrated. Then we come to uh, your fourth pillar: remediation, due process, and effective memory. You talk about grievance mechanisms, investigations, then the remedy, and then monitoring. And this is. Uh, this is the most challenging branch of the governance. Uh, it's also the one that's evolved the most in the last few years. So the general expectation under voluntary standards is that if a company causes or contributes to a harm, then it has a responsibility to provide remedy or cooperate in the provision of remedy to those affected. So at a simple level, uh, if you company own a mine in Mozambique and workers were harmed at that mine, it's your job as a company to either, or maybe both, provide a mechanism where those co workers can raise a complaint and then get some, whether it's compensation or some other remedy for the harms to put them in the place they would have been had they not been harmed, or to cooperate with credible processes, whether that's an administrative tribunal or court uh, to address those harms. That's, that was the traditional understanding under voluntary centers. It's, so it's different. If it's a supplier who's done it, then the responsibility is more to encourage that supplier to cooperate. What we've seen recently, so this is both in the German uh, Supply Chain Due Diligence Act and in the draft EU directive on corporate corporate sustainability due diligence 
is that companies are increasingly expected to have a mechanism that can hear and address complaints from anywhere in their supply chain and arguably even in their downstream value chain. That is your supplier, 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 a worker has been forced to work overtime. That worker should, in theory, be able to file a complaint directly with you, company, ultimate buyer. Uh, and there should be a process that is fair to hear that complaint and find a resolution. That might not mean that the, the company itself has to uh, to provide that remedy, but it should be, it should provide a venue to hear and to try to address it. I'll say, honestly, no company has figured out that part of the puzzle yet. Uh, a lot of companies we're working with, that's what we're trying to figure out, how you can do that. Because there are a lot of complexities. Uh, the moment you enable that kind of knowledge to flow, uh, including potential legal liability, for knowingly being engaged with a particular supplier. But that is the increasing expectation in emerging law. Well, how, how do you get around that then? What would be your advice? I mean, you have a, uh, a virtual complaint box set up at you know your subsidiary subsidiary. You, you get the, the message. It says there's slaves here. What, what do you just swing into action? You have a preset team there already in place to kind of do it? Or, I mean, how do you organizationally respond to that? How do you handle that dilemma? We don't know yet. So what the expectation is right now is it's not, if it were subsidiary, subsidiary, then you have to respond to it, right? Then then it is, uh, it falls within conventional expectations of this is a, a complaint of a particular type that you have to, your investigation team would need to address. The bigger challenge, frankly, is that it's a supplier, supplier, it's an unrelated business. Uh, and then you find out about it and addressing that kind of complaint, part of the issue, and we, this is, we don't know the answer yet, but this is what we're trying to work out, whether it can be done uh, under the standards, is that information might not flow to you company. There might be an intermediary who receives the information and that there's certain types of information that make it to the company and other types, no. Because the truth is, if you were to open up these mechanisms, as seems to be contemplated in the legislation, and make them truly accessible to everyone anywhere, the company would be completely overwhelmed. There's no way you could hear all the all the complaints from all supplier workers, process them, address them. Uh, but no, we don't know the answer yet ourselves. We're piloting different approaches to to test out how you can do that. We're also awaiting further guidance from the regulators on what they expect, because in several instances, I'm not sure the regulators have thought it through. They don't know what that mechanism looks like, because it can't, it's pretty clear it's not good enough for it just to be a hotline that anyone can call from anywhere. Uh, but it's not entirely clear what else it can possibly be and then whether the company itself has to be aware of and act on it, or whether it could be an intermediary that does it, and then what kind of information they need to pass on to the company. And this is going to be an ongoing challenge, though, for, I'd say, for the next decade. There's a lot of work to be done, uh, from conceptual thinking to practical testing on what these mechanisms look like.
I guess just to wrap up, what would be the, your advice for corporate secretaries in this as a advisor to the board? I don't know how much contact you have with them in particular, but do you see a role for them helping to make this process easier for boards? I mean, I, I would think of it uh, at this point largely as a gadfly role, right? That is to just make sure that the board is thinking about this, that this too is an issue to consider. Frankly, I said most public companies, certainly large public companies, there's some awareness and there are internal groups that are pushing it. A corporate secretary can be an ally. And we have seen that now with a couple of our clients where uh, the corporate secretary has taken a real interest in the strategy developed at the VP level and then has been an advocate at the board that take this. And that has, it's unclear. I, once again, it's a causation correlation question that is in those instances, the boards have been on board. It's unclear whether the corporate secretary is the driver or the corporate secretary reflects of the board culture. But I think the key thing is for corporate secretaries to track these emerging issues and say to boards, someone should be thinking about this. Now, and this is this is the element I can't stress enough is that we have gotten to a point where we're seeing a lot more law around this. We don't want to get distracted by the law. That is to say, most companies have been doing this. We were doing this long before there was law, and there are all sorts of other drivers to be doing it. So you do want corporate secretaries to be tracking the law, but I think it's a broader expectation to know what this matters for the company for various reasons law being one of them, but law may not even be the biggest one. I mean, frankly, for us, our engagements has often come from a BlackRock inquiry or a human rights watch uh, complaint as they do from uh, a legislative development. In many ways, law is the easiest element of this business risk and opportunity to tame. It is maybe the most uh, structured and rigorous, but in terms of expectations, but it lives within a much broader context of corporate risk and opportunity. And I think having board members and, and corporate secretaries in particular recognize the broader landscape to see the forest at all stages is, 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 is very important as is the most important thing on this kind of issue where it's easy to start treating it just as a compliance issue because there's law or just as a brand issue and to, to see how the pieces connect uh, and constantly raise that for consideration that's important and that's your governance matters podcast our thanks to a2 director yusuf aftab and thank you for listening a note before we go there's still time to book your spot at the corporate secretary summer forum Find out what top governance, risk, and compliance professionals have on their minds. Learn more at corporatesecretary.com. Until next month. Bye.